Hello there, and welcome to The Road to Nicaea, Christ, Creed, and Controversy in the Turbulent Fourth Century, part of the Earth and Altar Podcast Network. Episode 15, The Era of Too Many Creeds, Controversy and Conflagration, 341 to 350. As I warned you last time, there is going to be a lot of technical information in this episode, so we're just going to dive straight in and crack on as best we can. You will recall that we left off with the bishops in the easternmost third of the empire fuming at a letter from Bishop Julius of Rome, in which Julius told them how much they all sucked, and that they needed to let him be the boss when it came to judging bishops. They, along with the thoroughly annoyed Constantius, decided to meet up in Antioch since they were dedicating a new church there anyway, and why don't they just have a council while they're all there to produce their responses to this arrogant Julius? This council is referred to as the Dedication Council of Antioch, and it produced not one, not two, but four separate creeds to send back to Julius. I told you we were in the era of too many creeds. Like most people, when they are really mad, the bishops just kept thinking up more zingers they wanted to send back to Julius as they wrote, so they just kept writing more and more creeds to prove how non-heretical they were. Don't worry, I'm not going to make us go through all four creeds. In fact, two of them aren't actually important at all. One of them was written by some dude who was worried about his own orthodoxy, so he felt like he needed to make his own special statement. And another was actually written by a few bishops who came to Antioch a few months later to try to write a nice, normal creed that everyone could agree on. They succeeded in their goal mostly by creating something so milquetoast and vague that nobody could possibly challenge it, which is why everyone proceeded to ignore it and deal with the actual matters of controversy. So that brings us down to two creeds. The first creed contains two important parts, and it begins as follows, and I quote, We have neither been followers of Arius, because how should we who are bishops follow a priest? Nor have we accepted any other form of faith than that which was set out at the beginning, but we have rather approached him as investigators and judges of his belief than followed him. End quote. Notice how insistent the bishops are that they are not Arians, because Arius was a priest. They are bishops. Their job is to oversee priests and deacons and the laity. So they really do not like this whole Arian label that Athanasius has cooked up for them. It's a good thing Julius didn't call them Ariomaniacs in his letter, or he might have gotten a dueling accusation of Athanasiomania in return. The bishops point out that if they agreed that Arius was orthodox, it was because they had judged him orthodox, not because they were his fan club. They are, of course, conveniently leaving out the fact that most of them readmitted Arius to the empire because Constantine had told them they had to. Can't let the facts get in the way of a good assertion of authority. That's the first important part. Now on to the second. This creed includes a line saying that Christ will remain king and God forever and ever. They are pushing back on, who else? Marcellus of Ancyra with this line. 
you may remember that Marcellus had this odd doctrine where the son goes back into the father, almost like one of those Russian nesting dolls at the end of time. The bishops are trying to point out that this Marcellus dude is really weird, and if you Romans like him so much, maybe you're the problem. Maybe it's not us. Maybe it's you. So that's the first creed, which is really just a wind-up pitch. Then we get into the second creed, which you will usually hear referred to as the Dedication Creed. When people talk about just one creed from the Council of Antioch, they're usually talking about this one. As is usual with the really important creeds, I'm going to read it in full. And I quote, Following the evangelical and apostolic tradition, we believe in one God, Father Almighty, artificer and maker and designer of the universe, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, God, through whom are all things, who was begotten from the Father before the ages, God from God, whole from whole, soul from soul, perfect from perfect, king from king, lord from lord, living wisdom, true light, way, truth, unchanging and unaltering, exact image of the Godhead and the substance and will and power and glory of the Father, firstborn of all creation, who was in the beginning with God, God the Word, according to the text in the Gospel, who at the end of the days came down from above and was born of a virgin, according to the Scriptures, and became man, mediator between God and men, the apostle of our faith, author of life, as the text runs, who suffered for us and rose again the third day, and ascended into heaven and is seated on the right hand of the Father and is coming again with glory and power to judge the living and the dead. And in the Holy Spirit, who is given to those who believe for comfort and sanctification and perfection, just as our Lord Jesus Christ commanded his disciples, saying, obviously in the name of the Father who is really Father and the Son who is really Son and the Spirit who is really Holy Spirit, because the names are not given lightly or idly, but signify exactly the particular hypostasis and order and glory of each of those who are named, so that they are three in hypostasis, but one in agreement. Since we hold this belief, and have held it from the beginning to the end, before God and Christ, we condemn every form of heretical unorthodoxy. And if anybody teaches contrary to the sound right faith of the scriptures, alleging that either time or occasion or age exists or did exist before the Son was begotten, let him be anathema. And if anyone alleges that the Son is a creature like one of the creatures, or a product like one of the products, or something made like one of the things that are made, and not as the holy scriptures have handed down concerning the subjects which have been treated one after another, or if anyone teaches or preaches anything apart from what we have laid down, let him be anathema. For we believe everything that has been delivered from the Holy Scriptures by the prophets and apostles truly and reverently. End quote. If you're thinking those constant protestations of orthodoxy and of always believing the exact same thing sound a bit defensive, you are hardly alone. This creed is written to hit back against the accusations of Julius and Athanasius. And it hits back hard. There are a couple of important things to note about this creed. The first is that it follows what is starting to become something of a creedal pattern. It starts with a long list of biblical statements praising the Father, Son, and Spirit. Then in the end, at the anathemas, it tries to include some technical information about how to interpret those innocuous-sounding biblical phrases. After all, nobody's going to say the Son is not begotten of the Father. It's the question of whether you think there was an age before the begetting happened. 
The second important thing is the fact that it describes the Father, Son, and Spirit as three hypostases that are one in agreement, which sounds a little bit like the Father, Son, and Spirit created the Trinity out of some kind of especially firm handshake. That phrase is actually meant as a reference to Origen, who describes the Trinity in exactly this way. Recall that hypostasis means something like independently existing thing, and it becomes clear that this creed is trying to very definitively rule out modalism, that old bugbear of Christian orthodoxy, and a position often associated with the Nicene Creed by its critics. Poor Marcellus of Ancyra was regularly accused of modalism, and so it seems likely to me that the creed's insistence on three hypostases is once again aimed squarely at him. You'll also notice, to that effect, that the Creed specifically condemns the classic Arian statement that there was a time before the Son. It also condemns several propositions that Athanasius accuses the Arians of having, including saying that the Son is a work like other works. The goal here is probably to accuse Athanasius of scapegoating. See, the Creed says, we don't believe any of these heretical things. In fact, we've renounced them, and we've anathematized anyone who says them. Athanasius will not be convinced. There are several reasons why, but the big one revolves around that tricky description of the Son as the exact image of the Godhead and substance, usia, and will and power and glory of the Father. Notice how that non-scriptural statement about substance, usia, is tucked right into a laundry list of biblical descriptions of the Son. Creeds of all stripes love to do this. They'll repeat 90% of the same material as every other creed, then slip the important differences right into the middle of the similitudes. Don't be fooled. The differences make all the difference. Now, you will note that this creed uses usia language, but it doesn't repeat the Nicene statement that the Son is of the same substance as the Father. In fact, it's not totally clear to me if it's saying that the Son is the usia of the Father, or the exact image of that usia, probably the latter, because that phrase mirrors a very similar phrase used by Asterius. Asterius, you may recall, is that scandalous layperson who lapsed during the Great Persecution and hence was ineligible for ordination due to the Council of Nicaea's decrees. No doubt someone has written some fan fiction in which Asterius doesn't care about the nature of the sun at all, but just had a really big grudge against Nicaea because it meant he couldn't be ordained. But whatever the reason for his theology, Asterius was a really big name in the 4th century. Now that both of the Eusebii have died, Asterius is one of the main spokespersons for their tradition. In fact, it's mostly Asterius and not Arius whose theology Athanasius has in sights in his orations against the Arians. Athanasius is many things, but one thing he is not is dumb. He is perfectly aware that the Dedication Creed is crossing its heart, swearing to its orthodoxy, while also citing the one guy in all the empire who is most opposed to Athanasius. So, things between the bishops in the eastern third of the empire and the western two-thirds are not going great. A group of Eastern bishops came to Emperor Constans in the next year, wisely presenting that fourth creed of Antioch, the conciliatory one that was so boring everyone ignored it. The bishops continued to ignore it, and so did Constans. But some of the important leaders, Julius among them, decided enough was enough and that it was time to mend fences. 
they encouraged Constance to go ahead and call a general council of the bishops in the whole empire. Get them all together and solve these problems, just like his father had done with Nicaea. Now, Constantius was a little busy at the moment fighting off the Persian Empire in the Far East, so he didn't really have time to be worried about ecclesiastical fights when literal arrows were flying around his head and he had to dodge the errant scimitar strike. So Constans decided he would take the initiative and just call the council, which would meet in 343 in the town of Sertica, which is modern-day Sofia in Bulgaria a reasonably central meeting place for an empire that stretched all the way from Spain to Syria. It's unclear whether Constantius was annoyed that his brother was once again meddling in his territory's affairs, but in any case, he sent a few imperial delegates, so he wasn't unsympathetic to the need for unity. And so the bishops, still searching for the road to Nicaea, happily packed up and started heading down the road to Sertica. It will be fun, they said. Remember Nicaea? Remember how we came to an agreement pretty quickly? Oh, it'll be just like that. We'll put all this nastiness behind us and get back to worshiping our God in peace and unity together. But it would not, and they would not. To call the Council of Sertica a dumpster fire is an insult to flammable garbage everywhere. The Council of Sertica was a napalm bomb dropped on a nuclear waste site frequented by large packs of aggressive mutant zombie honey badgers. From the very start, nothing went right, and everything would keep going wrong to the bitter end. Now, the council was more or less geographically balanced. There were about 90 bishops from Constance territory and about 80 from Constantius's. We usually call these the Western and Eastern bishops, respectively, but keep in mind these are relative terms. In fact, a plurality of the Western bishops were from predominantly Greek-speaking territories, like Greece and the modern-day Balkans. So this is still very much a local council, not the grand union affair between the Latin-speaking and Greek-speaking territories. The problems began with the list of attendees, which included Athanasius and a couple of other bishops from the East that had been deposed in years prior. But most of the Eastern bishops refused to attend a council with bishops who, in their view, had been tried and convicted of immoral conduct and justly deposed. The Western bishops would have to leave Athanasius and the others behind before the council could start. The Western bishops then said, Look, we've had our own council in Rome, and we found Athanasius and all those others perfectly innocent, thank you very much, so if they're leaving, we're leaving. The Eastern Bishop said, well, we still think they are guilty of sin, so how about this? We'll make a new investigative council that you can have some seats on. It will be super long and unproductive, and will probably deadlock in the end anyway. The Western Bishop said, no, that sounds like a waste of time. The Easterners replied, well, fine, then if you're not going to do that, we're going to leave. We didn't want to come to your stupid council anyway. And the Westerners said, well, fine, we didn't want you here in the first place. And the Easterners said, well, fine, Constantius just won a big victory over the Persians, so, so yeah, we have to go back and greet him. And the Westerners said, well, fine, don't let the door hit you on the way out. Then everybody went home and excommunicated everybody else. I'm not kidding. The Eastern bishops excommunicated five prominent Western bishops, including Julius of Rome. That's right, the Pope got excommunicated. The Westerners replied by excommunicating ten Eastern bishops, including one who hadn't even shown up to Sertica. Then the Easterners called the Westerners all modalists, 
the Westerners replied that the Easterners were all Aryans. Things continued in this profoundly productive and edifying manner for about a year, during which time the bishops wrote a bunch of letters about how much the other side sucked. We're not going to get into the details of all these letters because I have to wrap this episode up at some point and I'm not going to make you listen to 90 minutes of bishops behaving badly. However, we are going to talk about the profession of faith the Western bishops make because it reveals the extent of the theological rifts between Constans' part of the empire and Constantius's. The whole statement runs about two pages single-spaced in tiny font, so I'm not going to trouble you with all of it. But here are some of the most important bits, and I quote, We disqualify and extrude from the Catholic Church those who assert that Christ is indeed God, but that he is not true God, that he is Son, but not true Son, that he is begotten, genatos, and at the same time has come into existence, genatos. For in this way they regularly interpret begotten. And recently two adders have been born from the Arian asp, Valens and Ursatius, who declare and state without equivocation, though they call themselves Christian, that the Logos and the Spirit was pierced and wounded and died and rose again, and, what the heretical rabble likes to claim, that the hypostases of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit are distinct and separate. But we have received and been taught this, that there is one hypostasis, which the heretics call Usia, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And nobody denies that the Father is somehow greater than the Son, not because of another hypostasis, but because the name of the Father is itself greater than Son. This is their blasphemous and corrupt interpretation. They contend that he said, I and the Father are one because of the agreement and harmony. We who are Catholics condemn this silly and wretched idea of theirs. Just as mortal men, when they begin to differ, confront each other in their differences and disputes, and then again return to reconciliation, so they say that differences and disputes could exist between God the Father Almighty and the Son, which is altogether absurd. We believe in and hand down the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, which the Lord promised and sent to us, and we believe that he was sent, and he, the Spirit, did not suffer, but the man whom he put on, whom he assumed from the Virgin Mary, the man who was capable of suffering, because man is mortal, but God immortal. As you can see, there is a lot going on here. First, this is as good a time as any to introduce Valens and Ursatius, those two adders of the Arian asp that get called out here. These two bishops are always mentioned together in every single ancient text we have. That's about as close a friendship as you can get. It was basically the ancient equivalent of that habit of coming up with combined names for celebrity couples. If they were alive today, we'd probably be calling them Ursalens or Valachius. Anyway, the important thing to know is that these two bishops were about as close to true-blooded Arians as you could find. They refused to condemn Arius as a heretic, saw basically nothing at all wrong in his theology, and preached as such. Western bishops were absolutely scandalized by them, and that's why they are called out by name here. But the Western bishops also said a lot here that would make theologians sympathetic to the Eusebian approach vomit in their mouths. First of all, these bishops use the terms usia and hypostasis interchangeably, which, as we've already mentioned, happens sometimes in this period. So the Western bishops think that in saying there is one hypostasis in God, 
they are saying there is one common substance that the Father, Son, and Spirit share. But what Eusebian bishops hear instead is that there is only one thing in the Trinity, only one independently existing thing, which is modalism. The Creed also accuses its opponents of saying that the Father and Son get into arguments sometimes, which is not a thing anybody has ever asserted in this period. Like, ever. The Creed also gets into the difference between genatos and genatos that we've discussed a few episodes ago, and since it is way too annoying to deal with, let's just skip it. And then finally, there is this weird statement that the spirit did not suffer in the incarnation, but the man he put on did, which makes it sound like the son and spirit are the same person? Which, again, nobody in this period would say except modalists. So you can understand why the friends of the Eusebii would have been so utterly verklempt at this statement of faith. And they weren't the only ones. This creed misunderstands its opponents so badly and is so embarrassingly ignorant of the theological vocabulary used by its opponents that Athanasius would later deny it even existed. Is it possible Athanasius genuinely didn't know about it? Sure, but it's far more likely that he knew this document was so bad that he downplayed its significance every chance he got. Hey guys, don't, don't look at that random document from Sertica. Ha <laughs> ha, so weird. Here, read my fancy orations instead. It's much better. Don't look over there, look here. Which means that the road to Nicaea is brought to you by straw man arguments. Arguing with other people in your head is great. You win every time. You get all the snappiest comebacks and most brilliant points to make. But have you noticed that arguing in real life is not so great? Those other people have brains. Sometimes they have the snappy comebacks and good one-liners. Sometimes you walk away feeling like you lost, not them. It's demoralizing. It's humiliating. But now there's an answer. Armchair theologians just like you have gotten lasting relief from straw man arguments. Straw men don't have brains, so you never have to worry about being one-upped. Enjoy all the comforts of being right from the safety of your own idea of what the other side is all about. Straw man arguments. If they only had a brain, you wouldn't be arguing with them. Offer good for a limited time only. Protection from enemy clarifications sold separately. Now, if you are dying of second-hand embarrassment that a group of ordained leaders in the church are acting this poorly, you are not alone. Most of the bishops realized that things had gone horribly wrong, and the years after Sertica were marked by a series of attempts to mend the breach. A pair of bishops from Constan's side of the empire visited Antioch at Easter of 344. This was a big step. It was only a year after the Council of Sertica, and only three years after the Eastern bishops had gathered at that very city to tell Julius off. All signs pointed to the beginnings of a rapprochement, and maybe it would have happened if the Bishop of Antioch hadn't decided to try and frame one of the delegates for fornication by hiring a sex worker to hang out in his bedroom while he was away. But things went wrong, and this rather transparent plot was exposed, which led to the Bishop of Antioch being expelled, and the two Western bishops returning home with less than charitable feelings in their hearts. Reconciliation takes time. It takes considerably more time when your enemies are trying to frame you for breaking your vow of chastity. 
But perhaps the most important change in this period came not from any bishop, but from the emperor Constantius. Up until this point, Constantius has mostly been concerned to keep the meddling pro-Nicene bishops from interfering with his affairs. He tended to regard Athanasius, Marcellus, and Julius as the instigators of problems, and his bishops as innocent victims. However, the Antioch affair showed him that maybe his own bishops were part of the problem, and maybe the blame didn't lie quite so entirely on the other side. Which was very good timing for Athanasius, because right around this time, Constans started pushing Constantius really hard to let Athanasius back into Alexandria. In fact, some ancient historians go so far as to say that Constans threatened to wage war against his brother if Athanasius wouldn't be restored. This is probably bunk. Constans was not so foolish as to start a civil war over whether a single bishop got to go back to his home, no matter how important that bishop was. If Constans did threaten war, then it's likely that Athanasius was just a convenient pretext. But Constantius was, as per usual, off fighting with the Persians again, which meant that he didn't really have the time or energy to argue with Constans about this. So in 344, he wrote to Athanasius, finally asking him to return to Alexandria and take up the bishopric there. It helped that the current bishop of Alexandria was mortally ill, so Athanasius wouldn't have to kick out a rival when he returned, just fill a vacancy. Now, Athanasius, being at the end of his second exile, knew better than to waltz straight back to his home, assuming all would be well. He made his way back over the course of several years, and he actually met Constantius in person along the way, probably to confirm that they really were good. He had also attended a council in Jerusalem to clear him of those charges of murder, violence, and extortion that had been presented at the Council of Tyre ten years ago. Of course, he had already been cleared of those charges in Rome, but he understandably wanted to be super-duper sure that everyone was going to be cool about this whole thing now, and he wouldn't be accused of murdering people for fun anymore. And the reconciling mood was not confined to Athanasius. At Antioch, the bishops gathered together to write yet another creed, which marks the fifth creed in four years that they have produced. Somebody really needs to cut them off. And especially now, because this one is called the Macro-Stitch Creed, which literally means the Long-Liner Creed. It's very similar to that fourth creed that they continue to attempt to make happen, but it adds a few important details. It anathematizes a few positions that everyone disliked, saying that there are three gods, or that Christ is not God, or that the Son did not exist before the ages, or that the Father, Son, and Spirit are the same, or that the Son is unbegotten, or that the Father did not beget the Son. All of these are out. Then the creed does something very interesting. It goes on to explain why it says what it says, and to explain why it doesn't say certain things. At the risk of wearying you with quoting one more bit of ancient text, here we go. A few key sections of the Macro-Stitch Creed, and I quote, It is not safe either to say that the Son is from nothing, because the scriptures do not say so nor that he is from some different underlying hypostasis from the Father, but we define him as genuinely begotten from God alone. But we do not take the dangerous course of declaring that there was a time when he did not exist, and envisage an interval of time preceding him, but only God, who begot him timelessly. We must not think of the Son as co-uninitiated and co-unbegotten with the Father. 
No father and son can seriously be said to be co-uninitiated and co-ingenerate. The father begat the son in a manner inaccessible and incomprehensible, and the father is the son's origin. We do assert three things and three persons, but not three gods. The sole, self-sufficient, and unbegotten and invisible God is one only, the Father of the only begotten, who alone has being and graciously gives being to other beings. We abhor besides and anathematize those who make a pretense of saying that he is but the mere word of God and unexisting, having his being in another, now as if pronounced as some speak, now as mental, holding that he was not Christ or Son of God or Mediator or Image of God before ages, but that he first became Christ and Son of God when he took on our flesh from the Virgin not quite four hundred years ago. For they will have it that then Christ began his kingdom, and that it will have an end after the consummation of all and the judgment. Such are the disciples of Marcellus and Scotinus of Galatian and Syrah, who equally with Jews rejected Christ's existence before the ages, and his Godhead and unending kingdom, upon pretense of supporting the divine monarchy. End quote. This is what a creed looks like by a bunch of basically Eusebian bishops who are trying to appease the Homoousian crowd as much as possible. They are super duper clear that Arius' statement that there was a time when the sun was not is right out. They are also clear that they are not saying the son is from something other than the father the way Arius did. Yet there are some clear limits. They also reject the idea that the son is unbegotten, a position that Athanasius maintains in a qualified manner. And of course, poor Marcellus of Ansira is called out yet again for his doctrines and basically accused of not even being a Christian. The fact that a document like the Macrostitch Creed exists is a testament to just how much desire there was to come to a unified solution. That desire is nowhere more evident than in Valens and Ursatius, those hyper-Aryan buddies who always got mentioned together. During this time period, they actually condemned Arius and indicated they might be open to reconciliation with the Homoousian crowd. I mean, don't get too excited, they're going to take their condemnation back pretty soon, but Valens and Ursatius are pretty good weather vanes. They almost always point whichever direction the wind is blowing. That tells us that right now the political winds all favored reunification. But continued attempts at reconciliation were, alas, abortive. A delegation brought this fifth creed to the Council of Milan, but the council refused to even consider it until the delegation condemned Arius as a heretic. The delegation, insulted at being treated with such suspicion, refused. They returned home, their creed unsigned. In fact, the only matter on which all of the bishops of the church could agree with this time was the condemnation of a bishop named Photinus, who was a straight-up, unapologetic modalist, and will get condemned about five times over the course of this time period. Seriously, it's amazing how many councils just end with, Photinus is terrible, we can't agree on anything else. Thus ended the era of too many creeds. But as it ends, it leaves us with an important question. Just what was the deal with all of these creeds anyway? I mean, it's kind of weird. Creeds were pretty rare before Nicaea, people didn't really write them down, and then all of a sudden everybody needs to write down their creed in the 25 years afterward. What is going on? The short answer, which I'm sure you all know by heart now, is that we don't know for sure. 
Some scholars posit that churches were desperately searching for a creed that everybody could sign on to, and so they just kept drafting and drafting them until they got one. But that's probably anachronistic. There's no good evidence that anybody at the Council of Nicaea thought that their creed was going to become the gold standard for orthodoxy, or even that there was a need for a church-wide creed for everybody to sign on to. Some creeds do seem designed as replacements for Nicaea. The Dedication Creed of Antioch is a prime example of this. But that may have more to do with firing back at a different group of bishops than a belief that there had to be one creed to rule them all and in orthodoxy bind them. It may help us to remember that these church councils are still pretty new. Nicaea is not very old, and that was the first ecumenical council since the Book of Acts. Bishops are still figuring out how to do this whole council thing, and it may be that they considered writing a creed to simply be part of the council proceedings, kind of like the documents that a committee is supposed to produce at the end. Of course, there had been local councils before, but now that bishops thought their councils might have universal significance, perhaps drafting a creed explaining why they had done what they had done was more important than it had been. And we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that most of these creeds are polemical documents, designed to tell other bishops exactly what was wrong with their version of the faith. Is there any hope at all for unity amidst all these fractitious councils? Well, yes. But it's going to take them quite a while to get there, and in the meantime, the wheels of history are turning. For the Emperor Constans, sitting pretty with his two-thirds of the empire, is in more trouble than he realizes. In a few short years, he will be dethroned and unceremoniously executed by a new revolutionary movement that will ultimately leave the Emperor Constantius II as the sole ruler of the Roman Empire like his father before him. And as the Empire enters a new period of political unity, new solutions to the Trinitarian dilemma will emerge. But to understand them, we have to understand the man whose watchful and ever-present hand would guide them. So next time, we'll turn our attention to Constantius II, our controversial and much maligned travel companion, on the road to Nicaea. This is an Earth and Altar Podcast Network production. For more podcasts and weekly articles, visit us at earthandaltermag.com.